Aravaca Road runs between Interstate 19 and the town of Aravaca in southern Pima County. It's a drive through rolling hills and, in my personal opinion, some of the best scenery the Sonoran Desert has to offer. But just off the south side of the road, sitting on private property and obscured by a large patch of Troya cactus, is a small area enclosed by a barbed wire fence. A faded wooden sign hangs next to the entrance, declaring this to be the Sopori Ranch Cemetery. There isn't much on the inside to distinguish it from the desert all around. But, as you move through it, you start seeing the headstones. Some are so old, the inscriptions have worn away completely. One of the stone tombstones has long since fallen over. An above-ground tomb even now has plants growing out of the top. But one thing a visitor will not fail to notice are three inscribed granite markers placed in the cemetery. They read, Anne Pennington died at the Sopari, 1867. James Pennington killed by Apaches, August, 1868. And finally, in memoriam, Elias G. Pennington, Green Pennington, killed on the Sonoida, 1869. Ellen Pennington Barrett, died at Tucson, 1869. Now, these markers also match one placed conspicuously at the cemetery's entrance. Anyone coming into the burial grounds will no doubt contemplate the words inscribed on that fourth marker as they move amongst the graves. It reads, Tread softly here. These stony mounds shelter the bones of Arizona's oldest pioneers. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 60, Tread Softly. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed last week's tour of the lives of Pauline Weaver, Jack Swilling, Estevan Ochoa, and the brothers William and Granville Aury. Today will be our last episode before I go off and get married. I can't believe it's almost here. And I hope that the runtime for today's episode helps soothe any pain for not having a new episode for the next several weeks. As a final treat before I up and disappear, I want to spend our time today telling you all about the story of the Pennington family. I love the story of the Pennington family. In fact, one of the reasons I started this podcast was so I could one day share their story with a large audience. Though, by the end of the day, you'll see that I love their story in the same way that I love that episode of The Twilight Zone where the man breaks his glasses. I first learned about them several years ago while doing a series of articles about local cemeteries for a newspaper I was working for at the time. In fact, I've posted a link to that article under this week's episode on the podcast's website, azhistorypodcast.com. And my former editor was kind enough to allow me to post some of the photos I took for that article, so after you are done listening to this, definitely check them out. 
Once again, they are under this week's episode at azhistorypodcast.com. So the most natural question right now is, who the heck are the Penningtons? Elias Green Pennington was born April 16, 1809 in South Carolina. An unverified family tradition holds that he was the son of a Revolutionary War soldier who had been with the Continentals during the brutal winter at Valley Forge and later became a landowner in Virginia. It's also said that on his 21st birthday, Elias was given a rifle, dog, horse, saddle, and $2,100 in silver and told to go and make his way in the world. If any of this was true, Elias never spoke about it and his children never heard about it directly from him. On September 8, 1831, Elias married Julia Ann Hood, a woman from North Carolina. Pursuing opportunity, the pair moved out west to Tennessee shortly after their marriage, where the first of 12, yes, count them 12, children was born in 1833. But even Tennessee became too populated for their taste, and hearing about land opportunities further west, they moved to the Republic of Texas in 1839, settling along a tributary of the Red River, just south of the modern border with Oklahoma in what is today Fannin County. By 1855, Elias was starting to feel crowded again, and started selling off land in anticipation of picking up his family and moving even further west. This decision was reinforced by the first great tragedy of his life, the death of Julia in September 1855 at the age of 40. She had never fully recovered from giving birth to her last child, and her health just failed. With his wife of nearly 25 years gone, Elias decided to take his family to California. As I said, Elias had 12 children, James, Lauren, Larsena, Caroline, John, Anne, Margaret, Amanda Jane, Elias Green Jr., William, Mary, and Sarah Josephine, who went by Josie. At this time, James was nearly 22, and little Josie was less than a year old. After stopping the farm briefly in West Texas for about a year and a half, the Penningtons were able to join a California-bound wagon train. Here we'll play just a quick montage of their travel. Walking dusty roads, herding animals, crossing swollen rivers, buzzards circling overhead, that kind of thing. Once on the far side of New Mexico in 1857, their path took them next through places white settlers feared to go. Cook Spring, Doubtful Canyon, and, insert ominous music here, Apache Pass. We've covered those spots pretty in-depth in past episodes, so you know why they feared going through there. Even if we are still four years away from Cochise and his Chiricahua Apache going on the literal warpath. Now, their wagon train made it through without any issues. But this is where fate really steps in. Once in Arizona, Several members of the wagon train became sick with what was called mountain fever, which included fatigue, delirium, and high fevers. One of those laid low by the disease was 20-year-old Larsena Pennington, 
whose fevers were extreme enough that when the wagon company pulled into Fort Buchanan along Sonoida Creek, Elias decided to stay there until she recovered. You might remember from episode 35 that forts didn't really have any buildings per se, and one person described Fort Buchanan in particular as an eyesore. So the Penningtons moved to a spot along Sonoida Creek below the fort. From the fact that they started cutting cottonwood trees to make a home and were planting crops, Elias obviously thought the family would be here for a while. And it's here that Larsena would meet the 23-year-old John Hempstead Page, a native of Maryland who had originally drifted out west to California. However, Page and some friends had heard about the crab expedition and decided they wanted to join with the filibuster. Having missed the main party at Yuma, they rode on to Tucson where they had heard recruiting was still ongoing. By the time they got there, however, they learned Crab and his men had been massacred in Mexico. Page and others were part of a wave of anti-Mexican violence over the perceived betrayal and murder of Crab's men. Finally, though, Page took a job with other farmers along Sonoda Creek, which brought him into close proximity of the recovering Larsena. As you can tell, I'm building up to something, and yes, the pair will eventually marry. But before then, the Penningtons, and really everybody else in the area, was having a rough go of it. You see, Elias and his boys had procured a contract to supply Fort Buchanan with wild hay for the animals. Except, yeah, the quartermaster couldn't afford to pay them. Cash was scarce in the Gadsden Purchase at the time, and Elias was one of 54 farmers clamoring for redress. To make matters worse, in late 1857, a horde of Apaches rode through the area and carried off everyone's animals. And if you make your living by freighting things, like, say, Elias and his sons, you realize how bad that really is. Feeling that Fort Buchanan was basically an Apache magnet that could not defend itself, let alone anyone else, Elias moved his family 25 miles south to a spot along the Santa Cruz River just east of modern Nogales. It was a curious spot to set up shop, as Charles Poston himself would remark, quote, Never in all my wandering life have I seen a cabin erected in such a desolate place as the Pennington Cabin. End quote. Plus, cabin really isn't the right word for it. Though a traditional adobe building was put up, one of the Pennington brothers, John, who went by Jack, helped erect a stone one as well, with portholes for firing rifles out of. With no money and no animals, the family was reliant on sacks of beans and dried corn that they had brought with them from their last settlement, along with what wild game they could scrounge up. Eventually, Elias would get payment for his hay contract, and was able to buy the animals necessary to freight again. With this, the older boys joined him on freighting goods to Tubac and the outlying mines. Jack, who had something of an adventurous streak, even went to the boom town of Gila City to try and cash in on the gold rush. That left Larsena and her older sister Lauren to run the homestead. There were all the standard chores, cooking, sewing, cleaning, hauling firewood, etc., 
plus teaching the younger children how to read and write. As they were the only American family for miles, the only time to see others was at community gatherings in Tubac, such as the July 4th, 1858 party put on by Poston. It was shortly after this celebration that the family moved again, this time to the Calabasas Ranch, where they lived in the house set up by none other than Manuel Maria Dandra. We talked a lot about this site in episodes 28 and 31. They would have a good year at the Calabasas Ranch, but would move back to the lonely house on the Santa Cruz in late 1859. And on Christmas Eve, 1859, Larsena Pennington married John Page in Tucson. We don't know much about the two's courtship, but we do know that for much of 1859, Page was actually a suspect in a murder investigation. The incident was part of a wave of anti-Mexican violence that we discussed back in episode 31. Larsena's brother Jack was also briefly involved, though soon absolved of any wrongdoing. Page appears to have gotten off due to legal technicalities. We don't have Larsena's thoughts on the matter, but the marriage went ahead anyway, so we can say that she either didn't care or thought him innocent. But the real story here is a terrible ordeal that Larsena would survive, which sounds like something ripped right out of the pages of a dime store novel. You see, Page had become involved in a lumber business in the Santa Rita Mountains south of Tucson. After originally living separately, Larsena moved to Madera Canyon, which is on the west side of the Santa Ritas, east of modern Green Valley, and incidentally a wonderful place to go hiking today. With her, she had brought Mercedes Saiz Quiros, the 10-year-old ward of a friend, in order to teach her how to read. The pair were together at the camp on March 16, 1860, just 11 weeks after Larsena's marriage, while the men went up to the sawmill. She had gone into her tent to relax for just a few moments, as she had been sick lately, when her small dog began barking. Suddenly, an Apache warrior burst into her tent, grabbed her, and dragged her outside. There were five of them, Tonto Apache, who were raiding far south of their traditional territory north of the Gila. Quickly, they tore through the camp, looting what they wanted, and then they turned on Mercedes and Larsena. At Lance Point, the Apaches prodded the two to begin moving up into the mountains. What followed next must have been nightmarish for Larsena. This, after all, was the worst scenario for every American settler. The Apaches force-marched them up to the steep, rocky slopes of the mountains, impatient with how slow the still-recovering Larsena was. In broken Spanish, they taunted her, while one of them kept pointing a Colt revolver, taken from her camp, at her head. A terrified Mercedes somehow relayed that the Apache were planning to kill her. After going some 15 miles into the mountains, and with dusk approaching, one of the Apache who had fallen behind suddenly returned and announced that a search party from the sawmill was following them. The all-too-slow Larsena was thrown over one of her captors' shoulders, and the group was off again. 
The Apache grew agitated, however, as they saw the search party was gaining on them. Larsena was told to drop all her heavy, warm clothing, and even to remove her shoes, before being signaled to move forward again. But as she took one step, an Apache lance pierced her back. Larsena lost her balance and fell over the edge of the steep ridge they were following. As she fell, some of the Apache followed, continuing to lance her and throw rocks at her head. Eventually, her lifeless form hit a large pine tree growing on the slope, which stopped her tumble. The Apache, either thinking she was already dead or would not last that long, moved her behind the tree to make her less visible. They then returned to the ridge, put on her shoes, and kept going. The last thing she recalled was the voice of her husband yelling out for joy that he had found their trail. But too tired and weak to make any sounds, Larsena lapsed into unconsciousness. Paige and his companions would pass right by where she fell, but kept following the Apache until the night obscured their vision. In the meantime, runners had reached the Kanoa Ranch, which we talked about in episode 16, and caused an uproar that would eventually involve the soldiers at Fort Buchanan and some allied Pinal Apache. The Tonto Apache took Mercedes to Aravaipa Canyon, where the rescue effort would eventually get her back in early April, several weeks after the kidnapping. But the real story here is Larsena. She lay next to that pine tree for two days before regaining consciousness. It's thought that the snow still on the ground slowed the bleeding from her 11 lance wounds and helped keep her alive. Too tired, injured, and beaten to even stand up, she was able to eat some snow and then crawl toward a spot of level ground where she promptly passed out again. The next morning, she awoke with the sun and, getting her bearings, was able to stand and begin painfully shuffling her way back in the direction of her camp. It's time for another montage. Larsena, freezing at night, surviving by eating snow, edible grass, and wild onions, rocks and thorns sticking into her skin, the sun burning her face, and the whole time getting thinner and weaker. By her own account, her feet gave out after that first day of walking, so she was literally crawling her way, slowly, painfully, down the mountainside. A full 12 days after her capture, she came over a ridge and spotted an ox team and some men down below. But though she called to them and waved her petticoat, her voice was too feeble to be heard, and the men never looked up. It would be another two days before she was able to crawl to where they had been. Thankfully, they had left a fire burning when they left, and she was able to get it going again from the coals. There was even some flour with which she could make a crude bread. From there, she was able to find the road the ox team had used, and once again, crawling down it was eventually found. It was now March 30th, 1860, a full two weeks since her capture. A doctor who treated her shortly after described Larsena as, quote, 
emaciated beyond description. Her hands and knees and legs and arms a mass of raw flesh almost exposing the bones, caused by crawling over the cruel rocks, uphill and downhill for days, she being unable to stand on her feet. You can imagine what she must have suffered. End quote. Larsena would spend most of the remaining year recovering from her ordeal, which by all accounts she did, except for the permanent scars from Apache lances. However, there was one more tragedy waiting for her. In January 1861, nearly a year since her capture, the cry went out about the Apache striking again and carrying off a boy, Felix Ward. If that name sounds familiar, give yourself two points for paying attention. In the aftermath of the Bascom affair, Larsena's husband, John Page, was asked to help guard a shipment on the road out of Tucson. On February 20th, just a couple weeks after the main action in Apache Pass, Page and his companions were set upon by a force of Apache in Canyon del Oro in the Santa Catalina Mountains. Just to keep linking this to our main narrative, his body would be found by none other than William S. Alry, who was just now returning to Tucson from Apache Pass. And believe it or not, this was just the beginning of a series of tragedies for the Pennington family. After the death of her husband, Elias brought Larsena back to live with him on his farm along the Santa Cruz. We know of another possible blow to the family during this time also. The husband of one of the sisters, Caroline, left ahead toward Pinos Altos to either dig for gold or find work. The sources I have lose track of him after that, but we know he never returned. Whether he abandoned her, or was one of those killed, perhaps during the conflicts with Mangas Colorados, I can't say. Meanwhile, we are getting into where we were in episode 37, that is, the beginning of the Civil War, with the mail service being terminated, troops pulling out, and the recently aggravated Apache starting to really swarm. The Penningtons were hit as hard as anyone, but while many of their neighbors decamped for safer territories, Elias refused to leave. His son Jack rode in from Pinos Altos to convince him to go, but he would not be moved. Now, part of this might have been because Larsena was pregnant with her deceased husband's child. Part of it might have been pure stubbornness. Whatever the reason, Elias kept his family in Arizona while most others fled. The one concession he did make was to move the family to Sylvester Maury's mine in the Patagonia Mountains, which was better defended. Here, on September 4, 1861, Larsena gave birth to her daughter, Mary Ann. Life was as good as it could be, given the metaphorical hurricane and earthquake, again, episode 37, happening at the time. A wave of smallpox washed through the mine, but fortunately it was a mild one, and both Larsena and her small child were able to survive. Elias would shortly move the family back to the solitary farm along the Santa Cruz, before heading to Tucson once the California Column had taken control of the town. Here, he and his sons, James, now 31, 
Elias Jr., who went by Green and was now 16, and Will, 14, operated a sawmill on the south side of the crumbling old Spanish Presidio. Hauling in pine trees from the Santa Rita Mountains, the Penningtons would sell boards to the army for 25 cents per foot. It's in Tucson in 1863 that Larsena would meet her second husband, William Fisher Scott, an adventurous Scotsman who had taken part in expeditions against the Apache and had even been with her brother Jack along Lynx Creek after gold had been discovered there by the Walker Party. The family was still in Tucson in 1864 when Charles Poston, sort of kind of on his way to Prescott to take up his post as superintendent of Indian affairs, passed through with the writer J. Ross Brown. Brown would meet Old Pennington, which is apparently what people called Elias, and would write of him, quote, He stubbornly refuses to leave the country, said he had as much right to it as the infernal Indians, and would live there in spite of all the devils out of the lower regions. He is a man of excellent sense, strange as it may seem. Large and tall, with a fine face and athletic frame, he presents as good a specimen of the American frontiersman as I have ever seen. The history of his residence in the midst of the Apaches, with his family of buxom daughters, would fill a volume. End quote. Or, you know, an extra-long podcast episode. Hearing that the army was considering a move further south to the mostly abandoned Tubac, Elias moved his family and operation there, hoping to supply the needed material for homes, barracks, and other buildings. The Pennington home was on the north side of the old Tubac Presidio. And the kicker is, it's still there. If you walk outside of the state park, you will find the remains with a giant board that says Pennington House. I've also added a photo of this to today's episode up on azhistorypodcast.com. Now, Elias and James were frequently gone either cutting pine trees or freighting far and wide, leaving Larsena and her sisters to take care of the homestead. They were by themselves when Charles Genug passed through in Tubac in 1864. Genug, whose exploits are recounted by early state historian Thomas Farish, was a Hasayamper, which we know from episode 44 means a miner from central Arizona. He was hot on the heels of a Mexican man who had murdered a friend of his. Genig also knew the girl's brother Jack, and he mentions John Pennington a couple times in his narrative while still near Prescott. The family hosted him for a night, with Larsena sharing her story of being captured by the Apaches. In the morning before leaving, he recounted how the two Pennington boys, Green and Will, guarded the path to the spring, quote, with guns as large as they were, so their sisters could haul water. It was during this time in Tubac that Caroline Pennington Burr, who had either been abandoned or widowed by her husband, caught the eye of a man named Abner Jefferson Nichols, who would become her second husband. Finally, during their time in Tubac, James would be ambushed by a small Apache war party while he was hauling goods to the Patagonia mine. The Apache managed to kill his teamsters and steal his oxen, but James came through unscathed. He would not be so lucky next time. All in all, though, things were starting to look up for the Penningtons and other Americans living south of Tucson. 
the Arizona Territory had been formed, with the legislature having completed its first session, which we talked about in episode 51. General John S. Mason was now military commander for the District of Arizona and had a plan to fight the Apache, which we talked about in episodes 53 and 54. Also, Tubac was flourishing again, with Fort Mason having been established at Calabasas. But remember, Elias Pennington does not like feeling crowded. We have seen him move several times now just to get away from people. That sort of social claustrophobia might have been the reason he packed up his family once again and moved to the Sopery Ranch northwest of Tubac. Now, the Sopery Ranch dates back into the Spanish colonial era. I mentioned way back in episode 8 that it had been started by Juan Bautista de Anza, the Elder. These days, it was held by William S. Aury, who allowed the Penningtons to settle on a part of it. Unfortunately, nothing of their settlement there still exists, but we do have a 1913 description by Robert H. Forbes, who we will talk about in a bit. He describes it as a stone and adobe structure built on a rocky point that jutted into the north side of Sopery Creek. Many folks in Tubac shook their heads at this move, considering it somewhat crazy. Sobery Creek was a route for the Apache coming to and from Mexico. Sabino Otero, of the Tubac Oteros, said he did, quote, not see how the Penningtons managed to live there because of the danger from the Indians, end quote. And with Elias and James gone so often, that meant the women of the family were left to fend for themselves in this hotbed of Apache territory. They often reported hearing the Apache nearby imitating dove and turkey calls. Josephine one morning took her horse to the creek for a drink. When she arrived back at the house, an Apache suddenly ran out of the bush, jumped on the animal, and rode away with it. The isolation was only broken by the arrival of a renewed mail service, something we talked about back in episode 51. This meant they could keep in contact with Jack, who was now up at the Vulture Mine in Wickenburg. But it's here at the Sopery that the first of several successive tragedies struck. In 1867, 24-year-old Anne Pennington caught malaria, which was going through the area at the time, and died. She was buried nearby though we don't know if her father and older brother were there to help dig her grave. That same year, 32-year-old Lauren, who went by Ellen, married a man named Underwood C. Barnett, who was an old mining partner of her brother Jack. Barnett was elected to the third territorial legislature, so he and Ellen moved to Prescott. However, this was the legislature that voted to move the capital from Prescott to Tucson, so the young family moved to first Tucson, then Tubac. And that's when tragedy struck again. In 1868, the couple's first child died at Tubac. But the year wasn't done dealing out blows to the family. James Pennington, the oldest son and now a middle-aged man of 35, had a business hauling lumber from the Santa Ritas to Tucson. In August 1868, he, his brother Green, and two Teamsters were on such a run. 
They had made it just north of San Javier del Bac when they stopped for the night, with the goal of reaching Tucson the next day. But when they woke the next morning, they found all 18 of their oxen had been stolen silently during the night. Leaving Green behind to watch the wagons, James and the Teamster set off to find the Apache who had taken their animals. Unfortunately, some of those Apache had managed to double back and hide alongside their own trail. When James and the Teamsters passed them, they sprang from the brush. In a flash, James, along with one of his Mexican companions, was dead. The remaining Teamster managed to escape and bring Green the horrible news. After this loss, the family moved back to Tubac, and eventually to Camp Crittenden, which had been built near the abandoned Fort Buchanan along Sonoida Creek. Here, Elias returned to freighting, mostly gathering up wild hay to sell at the fort, taking the now 21-year-old Green and 19-year-old Will with him. But because this is the 1860s, the Penningtons would again have many of their animals run off by marauding Apache, this time, they took roughly $2,000 worth of horses, mules, and oxen, which was a significant setback. Elias, however, was nothing if not persistent, and decided to try his hand at farming along Sonoida Creek again, roughly 12 miles or so south of Fort Crittenden, while the majority of the family stayed near the soldiers. This move, like most in his life, confused those who knew him. It's 1869, and though Cochise was possibly thinking about maybe considering a peace, the Apache were still everywhere. And Elias is now 60, which was getting well up there in years for that time and place. Perhaps it was Elias' own stubborn, solitary nature that kept him going to the far-flung places where everyone else feared to tread. And perhaps it was the fact that his family had managed to survive in Apache-ridden spots for going on nearly 12 years now that gave him the courage to keep going out to those far-flung places. A little ways out from the fort, Elias and his son, Green, met a local farmer who also cautioned him against going any farther, citing recent attacks even within 10 miles of the fort itself. Elias thanked him for his concern, but would not be dissuaded. As he and Green headed off again, the neighbor is said to have called out, Goodbye, Mr. Pennington. I don't expect to see you alive again. Once at their chosen spot, Elias, Green, and a few hired hands wasted no time. But perhaps at least a little cognizant of the danger, and knowing that the 13 mules he had brought would be an irresistible temptation for the Apache, Elias would plow with a rifle resting on the handles. On June 10th, 1869, Elias and Green were out in the fields. Around 11 o'clock that morning, an estimated group of 23 Apache suddenly sprang out of nowhere. Elias instantly slumped over his plow, his back riddled with arrows, the rifle on the plow handles untouched. Green, who was irrigating a nearby field with one of the farmhands, rushed to protect his father, not knowing that the old man was already dead. The Apache turned their bows on him next. One of the farmhands managed to grab Green and pull him into a fortified farmhouse, while two others fled to spread word of the attack to Fort Crittenden. 
Green was still alive when the soldiers arrived at the location. For the next week, he would hover between life and death before finally giving up the ghost for good. He would be interred with his father in the fort's cemetery. The loss of Elias and Green struck the family hard, coming as it did on the heels of losing Anne and James over the past couple years. Larsena and the remaining older children sold off Elias's equipment and moved back to Tucson. But the bad news hadn't stopped for the family yet. At the end of 1869, Ellen and her infant son came to live with her brothers and sisters. Her second husband, Barnett, the legislator, had just passed away either from rheumatic or malarial fever. He had been sick for some time, and caring for both him and her infant had worn Ellen down. All this convinced the remaining Penningtons that they needed to leave the rough frontier of Arizona. California had been their original destination, before Larsena's fevers had forced them to stop in 1857, so they decided to finally make it there. They wasted no time, and by the end of December, they were part of a wagon train bound for San Diego. But life can be relentlessly cruel sometimes. The family had gotten two days out of Tucson when they had to rush back. Ellen, worn out from all her work caring for her dying husband, had developed pneumonia. She died in Tucson two days later. Her infant son also passed away shortly afterward. And in one final bit of cosmic piling on, shortly thereafter, a drunken group of soldiers who had been evicted from a local bar shot one of the family's dogs just for barking. After this one last blow, Larsena reached out to Jack, who had by now removed to Texas because he had become tired of native raiding and killing. By the summer of 1870, Jack had arrived back in Tucson, helping the remaining family gather their things and then leave the territory of Arizona once and for all. While in Tucson, Jack had the body of his brother James dug up and moved to the Sopori Ranch so that Anne would not be buried there all alone. The last thing the family probably did was say goodbye to Larsena. In July 1870, she married William Fisher Scott, who had become a prosperous businessman with a stake in a new flour mill going up in Tucson. Larsena would be the only Pennington to stay in Arizona, with the rest decamping to Texas. From then on, her life would be significantly easier than it had been for the last 12 years, though it was not without difficulty. But let's skip ahead to 1902, when her daughter, Georgie Scott, married Robert H. Forbes, an instructor of agriculture at the University of Arizona. Forbes became fascinated with his mother-in-law's story and would make sure it was written down and preserved. Much of what I've related today can ultimately be traced back to his account written in 1919. Larsena would pass away on March 31, 1913, at the age of 76. She and her husband are buried together in Tucson's Evergreen Cemetery. 
After Mary Pennington, the last of Larsena's siblings, died in 1935, Georgie and her husband went to the Sopori Ranch, and it's they who set up the granite markers for Anne, James, Elias, Green, and Ellen. They also planted the gentle warning at the gate for visitors to tread softly. The Pennington family is memorialized today as the namesakes of Pennington Street in downtown Tucson, which branches off from Congress and runs behind the Pima County Administration Complex. This street follows the path of an old arroyo where Elias and his boys had operated their sawmill. I love the story of this family, mainly because it reads almost like a Greek tragedy. From Larsena's miraculous story of survival to the untimely death of her father and four siblings, there is just so much to unpack here. But I also love it because their story really is the story of Arizona. As I hope you picked up on, the lives of the Pennington family were impacted by nearly everything that we've covered up to this point. The Crab Expedition, Charles Poston and Tubac, the Bascom Affair, the invasion of the Confederates, the arrival of the California Column, the creation of the Territory of Arizona, the Walker Party, even the creation of the Mail Service. These were real events with real outcomes for real people. And the Penningtons were there to see it all. And I'm glad I finally got to share their story with you. Unfortunately, I'm afraid it's time to say goodbye for now. I'm off to get married and move. So I guess I'll see you in July when I'll be back to kick us off on the tumultuous decade that is the 1870s. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.